This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. Goes backwards, forwards. Takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It's not called the wheel. It's called the carousel. Hello and welcome to the Carousel Podcast. This is Isaac Simpson. Today I have with me actually probably my favorite Twitter account. So um, it is Insect Bra. Welcome Insect Bra. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. So what is this name? Bardesanist? Bardesanist. Oh, Bardesanist. Yeah, that's that's my display name. Um, tying into what I was talking about before. It's uh, he was uh, you know, an early theologian, Valentinian, um, you know, uh, you know, Gnostic Christian, but he brought Christianity to Syria. Um, just an interesting figure. A lot of his stuff is actually lost, but um, I find him, I find him very compelling. You know, mostly t- through retellings, and uh, he was a, a hymnographer who wrote um, some significant, significant early Christian hymns. Uh, but it was just kind of when I was rebranding my account, it was just kind of what I came to as a name. So when did Christianity get to Syria? Um, this was probably second century, third century. This was, he so was, early. I mean, maybe yeah, probably second century. This was pretty early. He was the follower of Valentinus, who was one of the earliest heterodox Christian theologians. Um, but he, Bardacianus went, went east to Syria. He's credited with bringing Christianity over there, even though eventually Christianity in Syria would pivot towards a more orthodox um uh, Syriac, uh, Syriac poetry. Mm. What does heterodox mean in this context? Basically, it just means outside of the orthodoxy. So oh, early Christianity, like really early, there wasn't an established orthodoxy. But a lot of these, you know, quote unquote, heterodox or heretical sects were chronicled by the like the proto-orthodox church fathers, the the Christian figures who were trying to create an orthodoxy, a canon of Christianity. While all you know, so trying to eliminate all these other branches, teaching, uh, you know, teaching various Christian teachings. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. Very cool. Um. So the reason why I love your account so much is, I, <clears throat> I, you know, I just had a guy. Probably we'll see when this one comes out. But I also just interviewed a guy who makes pig lard face products. Nice. So. To me, it all comes back to this concept that I don't think there's really a good name for it, but it's more or less the new natural. So Mm -hmm. the original Whole Foods movement was a hippie movement, right? That was kind of like in the, you know, whenever that was, 60s, 70s, whole earth catalog type of stuff, which morphed into the boomerite Whole Foods. You know, it was like I grew up going to health food stores with my hippie parents and that yeah. then, like most of the lefty boomer things, actually became the mainstream of society. You know, like where where do we forget that we all go shop at Whole Foods now? Whole Foods used to be like an ultra crunchy. Yeah, now it's Amazon. Know, like like it used to be like a little tiny store, you know, that had like really hard like fruit leather type of thing, you know. 
Yeah. And it has become like the grocery store. So, but it still has this whole food. So I, I see this really interesting trend where that lineage of like real foods and not foods that are destroyed by lowest bitter globalism, like seed oils and these disgusting, you know, treating animals really terribly, all these things that we do to lower the costs of global foods. All of the projects that are genuinely against that are now coming from the right. Yeah. Uh, which is returning beef tallow to things. I just went to Erewhon just minutes ago and tried their new beef organ smoothie. Beef organ smoothie, wow. Yeah, which is Erewhon is like the new Whole Foods. But the, yeah. the, it's yeah, weird because right. it's actually kind of like right. It's like, a, I mean, nobody would say Erewhon's right wing, but it actually is kind of like a little bit. Um. So I, what I love about, I, this is something that fascinates me. I'm a massive food person. Like I express my life is like going to bars and restaurants. Like that's what I care about in life. Uh, I've been a waiter. I've been a bartender. I've, I've done all that stuff. And you're a chef, but your account is like so awesome because you're talking about really deep esoteric food and health and um, not even health, but like like animalia, you know, like, like the world of things we consume and touch. And then you also have this kind of religious bent and you're a chef, you're a professional chef. So you're just bringing this like really cool perspective to our whole uh, side of Twitter. Yeah. Thank you. Um, obviously food's a big part of my life as a chef. Uh, but even before that, you know, I've worked on farms before I, uh, I was the earliest job I ever did was was um, horticulture for returning native plants to to the city, which wasn't so much food involved. We did grow some edible plants, um, but since I was a little kid, as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by the natural world. Um, I really wanted to be a forensic entomologist as a, as a small child, and now I would go out and I would collect bugs, make uh, make slides, look at them under the microscope. So, the you know, nature has always been a big part of part of my life, and I try to definitely integrate that. I mean, it, it it it's in every aspect of my life, but I try to integrate that into the food and the chef. I mean, pretty much every menu I've ever made, uh, I've like foraged plants or grown plants, so a lot of it comes right from nature. And there's so much you know wild food out there that people don't really notice. So I think it gives an interesting uh, interesting angle, while also sort of getting back to to nature, um, but obviously, in you know, insect in my name, I'm, I'm very fascinated by animals. And I think it's interesting you bring up health because hopefully in a few years, I'll go to medical school. And uh, so having both the food and the, the interest in human biology and infectious disease and everything, bringing that together is something that's a big part of sort of what I talk about. And you're a writer. So you're going to be a doctor, a chef, a writer. You're going to be everything. Hopefully my copious amounts of free time. You seem kind of like the type that would like, uh, you know, pay people money to get the discarded bodies that nobody has claimed just so you could like cut into them and kind of like see what's inside. Yeah, that's, that's pretty accurate. Um, I did my, when I was in like eighth grade, I did my final project on Vesalius, the, uh, the, the Renaissance anatomist who would, did the first public dissections of human bodies. Wow. Yeah. Who was who was he? What was did he get in trouble? Was he hung for his crime? He wasn't. I mean, you know, this was at a time when people were really interested in, you know, the workings of the body, the workings of the natural world. 
you know, this is when like all of these, you know, alchemists and hermeticists and stuff are also doctors and scientists, even Hildegard von Bingen, the, uh, the mystical visionary nun, she was like considered the, the mother of German natural science. So this was, and that was, you know, late medieval, but this was a little bit later than that. But this is sort of when a fascination with this, there was this fascination with the spiritual world, but also with the natural world, bestiaries. So people were really intrigued by Vesalius's work. I'm pretty sure he did steal bodies, but um, corpse theft from scientists went on for a long time. They found some large number of corpses in Benjamin Franklin's backyard. Oh, right, right. I was just um, hearing that, that they found a bunch of dead bodies in there, right? Yeah, and people sometimes assume, oh, you know, he was killing people or something, but really there was just no, you know, formal source of cadavers for scientific study and experiment. So a lot of them were just kind of reclaimed corpses. But Vesalius would, he did the first, the first dissection. So he would take them out, um, you know, on the on big town square, people would come and watch and he would, uh, you know, open the bodies up and sort of teach about anatomy. But he was, Paracelsus was like the first doctor, but um, Vesalius was the first real serious anatomist, at least in the rest, Western world. That's awesome. When, when was that? Um, this was like early Renaissance. I'm not sure the exact. Uh, oh, exact yeah. Date. So this isn't even that long ago. I mean, you would think that science was thousands of years, but we're talking about that's only like 500 years ago, right? Yeah. I mean, people were, I mean, it's a little, yeah, yeah. 500 years. People were, you know, writing about the human body and stuff earlier than that, but not in exactly the same like clinical tone that Vesalius was working, you know, a real formalistic development of the uh, science of anatomy. And I'm sure that, you know, that might've occurred elsewhere perhaps in the Arab world earlier, but in terms of the, you know, in the Western canon, Vesalius was the first, like, he's the real father of anatomy. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So uh, how did you find your way to Twitter? And like, what parts of Twitter are you in? You know, like, there's, uh, there's a couple bras out there, right? There's also, yeah. um, what are the bras? Oh, that's kind of a joke with the bra. Yeah. That, <laughs> that's, uh because there's like, you know, there's, I, I don't, you know, really like this, like esoteric health accounts, like soul bra or anything, soul bra. but I thought yeah, it was right. funny. You're so I mean, You're the uh, there's kind of a, there's kind of a trend of, of yeah, bras. insect bra. There was another um, bra too that, that I forget, but yeah, he's like a, a big one, but yeah, yeah keep there's going. a few of them. I, there was a time when people were like naming themselves, um, you bra. know, kind of jokes. Like I think there's like mercury bra out there or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's uh it's 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 a it's a recognizable handle, so I've just kind of stuck with it. I've had a lot of different, or I haven't really had that many different names, but in terms of my Twitter journey, I started out kind of on like uh, like pine tree Twitter, like dissident naturalist stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, back when that was a thing, that doesn't really exist anymore. There's a few holdouts, but um, before that turned, before that changed, that was kind of what I was talking about, kind of you know. Uh, anti-tech, you know, a big fan of Jacques Ellul, who was a Christian anarchist, uh, anti-anti-tech writer, big inspiration of Ted Kaczynski, um, and so and and permaculture because I was I was more focused in regenerative agriculture at that time, um, but I just kept getting into like random debates and stuff, and there was like I had like a slight politics angle, and I wanted to kind of get rid of that. I was kind of exhausting me so and I was talking about more and more different things as time went on I found I was kind of limiting myself in a niche so now I'm on all kinds of all kinds of sides of Twitter which is kind of a blessing and a curse whereas I get you know this very you know diverse extensive ring of people but also 
you know, I get like interaction policed where if I like, if I say something or even if I like something that that's maybe, you know, uh, not accepted on, on some other side of Twitter that has people following me, I'll get, get kind of harassed. But I like sort of being, uh, having my, having my, you know, toes and fingers in different, uh, different pots of water. Yeah. So what happened to Pine Tree Twitter? I'm not sure exactly. I think some of the people became like Bronze Age pervert type guys Yeah. Um, on that side of Twitter. And then other ones, I guess, kind of just got absorbed into traditional Catholic Twitter. Those are the oh. two sides that I see have the most former Pine Tree people. But it was it was kind of like Lindy Twitter. I don't know if you remember Lindy yeah. Twitter. Yeah, I mean, he's still around, the Lindy guy. He, yeah, he's still around. But there used to be like like uh, Soren and uh, Lindy Fit, all oh. these all the, the Lindy died, all these different accounts. Like that was, you know, the Taleb thing was big. Again, I was around at that time too. And, you know, I had mutuals with those people, but that also kind of disappeared. I mean, you still got Paul Scalis, but it's not quite the same like ring of people anymore. Yeah. that See, that was all like way before my time. So it's funny, but I mean, there's still like the Doomer optimism podcast yeah. and stuff like James Pogue, is one of these guys. James Pogue is like views himself yeah, as like Pogue. a pine tree Twitter guy, I think. Rhizoma Field School. Yeah, Rhizoma Field School. You know, I don't know if you know right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's, she's a lot like one of my first mutuals and, and really great. So there's yeah. still definitely that that type of the more permaculture <laughs> angle of it going on right now. But you know, people in my sphere hate her for some reason. It's a her, right? Yeah. There was some drama with like uh it's this now defunct publishing company, like uh Mystery Grove publishing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like they, still was... around-ish. Yeah. No, yeah, you're shut... right. I think they just went out of... Yeah, they, they just, just, they just shut yeah. down, yeah. But there was like some beef there um, that got big and... But... Yeah. I don't know. I can, I can vouch for Rizoma. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, Pogue likes likes her too, so... Yeah. Um. Yeah, wow. So you've been kind of around yeah, for that's, a while. Yeah, that's still, still going on. So do you view yeah, like, your, do you view yourself on the political three years spec- now? Sorry, go ahead. Not so much anymore. Um, I would say you know my my pol- if I you know had to had to choose like a political ethos, I kind of you know I, I kind of grab towards towards the Sermon on the Mount kind of you know Christian pacifism kind of thing. But I found that within like the, the context of actual politics, um, it was kind of just depressing me, and uh, I I didn't really have any joy talking about it anymore so i've kind of tried to try to become apolitical for the most part there's still some like social issues i talk about um but that's usually from like uh like a theological bent i i will tell you that i think that our plight is one of airwaves and the solution is earth <laughs> is things earth. in the earth right yeah so like i think that uh what you're doing is more political right i mean it's in a way it's more political i i think like what my clients are doing like masa chips and stuff and you know these these uh brands that are fighting the battle not by like you know the hot take of the day yeah. you know but by instead actually like making something independent from the globalist substance. I think that that's a much more political act and far more profound than like the latest hot take. I mean, what is the latest hot take really doing? Like nothing. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I agree. I I should say, 
I should say maybe a, I'm, I'm maybe it's a you know a political act, but but not ideological. I don't I don't you know try to try, preoccupy myself with ideology. Yeah, or or with like the trying to think of the latest argument. You know, it's, it's yeah, as yeah. we as we as we've learned the the arguments are pointless. You know, no neither side is listening. So it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, there's no like we're not nobody's going to convince anybody of anything, at least until like the next war happens. But like to me, rationalism is done. Yeah, 100%. there's no like best argument. You know what I mean? Like if there was a best argument, they wouldn't be, uh, you know, feeding us engine oil. <laughs> you know what I feel mean? like, like, yeah, like uh, I, I think so. Um so, yeah, I mean, what do you make of have you ever worked in the mainstream of food? I mean, not so much the mainstream, uh, mostly the kind of the kind of work I've done um, for other chefs is, you know, kind of molecular gastronomy, modernist cooking. Uh, I haven't, you know, worked in like a like a mainstream kitchen or anything like that. Well, but, but that, kind of but that would be mainstream, right? I mean, molecular gastronomy would be sort yeah. of the mainstream of, of fine dining. Oop, I think I lost you there. Hello? Oh. Oh, hello. It, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, sorry. I was saying that in that sense, I've uh, I've been in the in kind of the mainstream of food. So did you come up? I'm going to switch to the other G thing here because just one second. It's probably will take one second to switch. Uh, I, I probably am breaking up for like one second right now, but yeah. can, can you hear me? I can hear you now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I just switched to the 2G. Um, so so you you have done like tell me about your career path as a chef. Did you come right out of school? Did, did you always want to do this? I mean, what 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 uh, how did you come up? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty unorthodox. Um, I'm for a long time I was pretty much entirely self-taught. I just uh I don't know, I've I've kind of a like a sense for flavor that I think a lot of people don't have. Yeah. Um and so I started, you know, I I did a lot of like cocktail and stuff, just sort of whatever parties would take me. Um but I started to really hone my skills and, you know, study other chefs. Uh and just because I felt like, you know, I've I've always been into science and I've always been into art and I think that food you know at a certain level is really a union of science and art mm, so that that food, attracted me to it of science and art yeah i think that's dead on and, it is uh, food art food art exactly is, no is food art oh is food art uh that's a good question i think at a certain point it becomes art but that's up it's it's, it's hard to objectively pin when food becomes art but I, I think definitely when... think it is I, I can't believe anybody thinks it's not art i can't believe anybody thinks that yeah. To me, it's always been art. It's and it's my favorite art by far. I think you know I, by far it's my favorite. Art. Of course, food is art. I mean, yeah. like what? What? I mean, like oh, just because you eat it means it's not art. Like it's definitely art. I don't understand why anyone says it's yeah, art. It's, it's a creative process for sure. Absolutely, I'll spend weeks coming up with menus. Totally, and and, and it's just another sense. It's the only art you can taste. There's no other art you can taste. Yeah, exactly. That gives it a, a special, special kind of art in the form that you can eat it and you can take sustenance from it. Yeah. And I like the, you know, the service element of it. I like to, you know, help, uh, help people out, make them happy. So when people, you know, actually making the food is, you know, it's horrible, it's stressful, it's grueling, but 
seeing people eat it and enjoy it and seeing the finished product is really uh, it makes you know it makes an 18 hour day worth it seeing the people who really seeing the people who enjoy it yeah that's the part i never gave a shit about <laughs> <laughs> i was a waiter i mean i was just like a waiter and bartender you know i worked in restaurants in college i worked in uh when i moved to la i worked uh, as a bartender but um yeah no i mean i always loved uh the the whole kitchen and you know it's it's weird what what there's a great great quote about chefs um that i was just reading that's like they're the um i think orwell said it like they're the uh most blue collar job that is actually like that acts that has no working class like um ah uh, god i'm not i'm going to screw up this quote but it's <laughs> it's basically saying that like it's actually like they work the hardest but they're actually like not bound it's like the least slave like job you can do like you are like a pure slave when you're a chef you're like not at all like a slave of anybody like you are a total yeah. master of the thing yet you're also like the most working class thing you can be so it's like this weird dichotomy Yeah, I kind of feel like a slave sometimes, but when I'm actually, you know, making the food, I'm in the, I, I, you know, I'm even in control of that. But you know, I had to wash uh, in Denmark. I had to wash reindeer moss for like six hours to get all the stuff just repeatedly. So it felt a little slavish sometimes. But what is uh, when I'm in control? Of the, uh, it's like a lichen. Um, yeah, the chef I was working for, he really likes it, and he uh, like fries it, and so he fried it and served it with uh, like a fermented sour cream which was really good it was just Whoa. probably the most labor-intensive thing i've ever done in a kitchen was just cleaning that stuff yeah, so how do you clean it you basically have to put it in water and then rub it around in your hands to get like because it's it's he gets it like straight from the forest so it's filled with like twigs and dirt and little black specks and so you put it in the water you wash it out and you can't break it up so you have to be kind of gentle you take it out, leave it for a while, and then you do it again and again until the moss is really clean and ready for human consumption. It has oh, zero wow. nutritional value, fun fact about reindeer moss. But it tastes cool. Like when it's fried, I like it. What does it taste like? I don't know how to explain it. It's kind of more of a texture thing, I guess. Um, there's not so much taste to it. It's a little herbaceous, but you get kind of like a, a crunchy, crumbly taste on the fried reindeer moss, or texture on the fried reindeer moss, which I, I did like. It was one of my favorite things that we made um for that you know 12 course 12 course tasting menu like kale i'm visualizing kale like crispy kale yeah but it's it's thin it's like thin threads because it's a lichen it's kind of like it's kind of like uh like lace so it's the, each you know thread of the moss is really thin so it kind of just breaks in your mouth wow that's so cool uh, so the the quote from uh, Orwell is undoubtedly the most most workmanlike class and the least servile are the cooks. Yeah. So like That's the most quote. workmanlike, but the least servile, which is like it's so true. And that was anytime I've ever worked in a restaurant, it's like the chef was just like the coolest person, yeah. you know, like did not give a fuck and just like very passionate you know like yeah. they'll yell at you they don't give a fuck like they will definitely yell at you it doesn't matter who you think you are you have to uh you have to you know be be passionate you have to love it in order for it to you know be worth be worth doing 
because yeah, but it's, it's also like great because you're moving your body. Yeah, you know, you're you're consuming things. You're at. You're producing. It's creative. Like I it's agree. a fucking great profession. It's just really rough on the body, right? Because you're working nights. You're drinking all the time. Like it's just very like unhealthy. Yeah. Well, my feet are are still pretty shot from last night. Yeah, like you're standing up like all right. It's like yeah, really I, I never sat down. Uh, I didn't even take a break because I had to get so much stuff out. And I only had one Sue. Um, and, you know, this was a, a pretty big undertaking. Ten people, five course menu. Um, but I ended up getting everything out. It, it worked out. But uh, yeah, my, my body's you know, it's pretty rough. But it is good to move around. Like you said, I feel like like I've worked in retail before, too, or. Even, I very briefly worked in an office job, which is one of the, my least favorite things I've ever oh, done. But I can't, I mean, unless I'm writing, I can't bear, I mean, even when I'm writing, I get up, I walk, you know, to help me think of, of what next, but I can't bear to be, you know, either just standing up, you know, unmoving or sitting unmoving for like hours at a time. I don't know that, that. Uh, no, I'm right there with you. Uh, man. Doesn't inspire me. Yeah. I'm right there with you. We're, you're, we're like, it's funny we're you're we're like losing you every now and then like in the I don't know if you're in like a bad service area or if it's yeah, should have me, should have good 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 Wi-Fi maybe I'm not it's sure. me because just the last person actually also had this problem yeah it, it's been freezing for like a second or two at a time you're I, just like your like, your video that's weird uh maybe eh. uh well anyway I mean it's fine it's it's not like super bad but um. So what do you think of like a Bourdain? What was your thoughts on, on Bourdain? I mean, I, you know, I, I, people are like really, really cruel about Bourdain because he killed himself. Yeah. If you ever see a Bourdain quote, people will be like, oh, I don't take advice. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> who killed themselves. Which I think it's a terrible thing. I mean, you know, there's been pr- plenty of geniuses that killed themselves. I don't, but I've, you know, I haven't been, I'm not actually so much of a foodie as I am just like, I like making food. But um, I think he was, you know, I think Bourdain had a lot of a lot of good things to say, and I respect his his work a lot. Um, but I don't know. I'm not I'm not super versed on Bourdain. I do think, you know, he's a little he was a little pro hazing in the kitchen, which you know to a certain extent I'm I'm not such a fan of. But I, uh, you know, I, I appreciate appreciate the kind of the kind of stuff that he did. He was a creative guy. So who do you like in, in the world of food? Who's somebody that you really respect and, and love? I would say Grant Ackett's the head chef at Alinea. At Alinea, right. So he's he's the guy with no jaw or whatever, like his jaw. He had some jaw cancer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he, not, not that, you know, I, I just that's right where my mind went. But he but and he's pure molecular gastronomy, right? Yeah, he's he's, you know, so much science goes into that. Yeah. I have the Alinea cookbook. And I have the okay. aviary cocktail book, which is his, the Alinea cocktail bar, the aviary, which is molecular gastronomy for drinks, which was sort of something that pulled me more into food. Um, I started out kind of more in the cocktail space, but I just think that his his eye for detail, his creativity, um, and you know, just kind of the quality of it. I haven't eaten at Alinea, but I've made some made some Alinea stuff. Obviously, not as not as well as he would, but his just like I talk about that sense of flavor. I think Grant Ackett's has that really strongly have you um, been just i haven't been yet i was supposed to go for my birthday but um one of the people we're going with unfortunately her her uh mother died of alzheimer's so we weren't able to <clears throat> yeah weren't able to go but um 
I would love to go. It's like one of, there's not a lot of restaurants that I really want to go to, but Alinea is like at the, at the top of that, but just seeing his creations, you know, he's so creative. I know there's in one menu where, um, the, uh, they put like one of the dessert, one of the desserts was like balloons with green apple infused helium. <laughs> and, um, they would like, there's like a, a video someone showed me of like some super serious businessmen at Alinea. And they were like, you know, they, they sucked the helium in and then they, they're supposed to talk, you know, after yeah. drinking the helium. So they had the really high pitched voices. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I just think he's really cool. And, uh, you know, he got to start young, but he's, uh, you know, he's, he's a real, real culinary genius. I, I don't use that term lightly. Yeah. Well, he's definitely like the, the guy of the moment, you know, and th- this is also what I love so much about food is that it doesn't have to be. You know, like molecular gastronomy, I'm sure so many people hate on it, right? As a novelty, yeah. but it's also like undeniably awesome. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's like undeniably very cool, but, you know, and it's like you can't, you know, yeah, you're not going to go there when you're hungover, you know, but still <laughs> as an experience, it's it's great. It's really fun. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love eating and making like simple food that Verification spheres like hundred times now. Every time it's just like so cool when you like pops in your mouth. I don't. I still. I <laughs> think oh, you know, this is awesome. So doesn't really get old for me. But um, I do. I I do think that that delicious. You know, delicious food should take priority over you know beautiful presentation. But if you can have both, that's really like the coolest thing about food for me. So I think the best meal of my life that I ever had, I actually had one of the best meals I've ever had in my life the other day, which is very rare. I'm I'm extremely picky and critical. I was in Seattle uh, for a client and we went to a place called like Walrus and and Donkey. You know, it's actually <laughs> it's, it's a fucking stupid name. I hate these like two word names. Yeah, I hate the it's like yeah. a word. And another yeah. Word. Oh, shut the fuck! Like the gastro oh, dude, pub like, names. In my in my Montana piece that went super viral, it was Twig and Willow, the the retail <laughs> you know the shop that's like a Willow. rich like a rich guy's wife, it's like selling fabrics. Yeah, we have <laughs> a know, lot like of those candles. here. It's like, yeah, there's so like many of those fucking straw places. and paper or something yeah. like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. It's like, uh, oh my god. Uh, so normally I hate this shit, but there's a okay. So it's actually called Walrus and Carpenter, which is uh, I guess the name of some poem. But um, but so I was like, eh, how good is this really going to be? And it was like an hour wait, hour and a half wait, tiny little hidden spot, you know, uh, oysters just in in like wire baskets and it was so so good i mean just like absolutely incredible every flavor perfectly thought out you know a bunch of weird things on the menu like like chickpeas like a chickpea appetizer it's just like whole chickpeas and like a weird sauce and uh you know charred like the halibut collar and um scallops and it was just and like just oysters like a million oysters and uh really good drinks it was just like absolutely perfect but i think the best meal i've ever had was actually in south dakota or north dakota at a cowboy like ranch just eating steak and like uh like (laughs) wonder bread that was made into garlic bread oh yeah Um, so i i always ask everybody what your favorite obviously this is an impossible question to answer but what your favorite meal you've ever had is 
Um, my favorite meal that I've ever had was that it's like a it's like a one Michelin star restaurant. It's called Madcap, um, Northern California. And it's uh, it's nice because it's not, you know, so crazy like the three Michelin star places like the, you know, single thread or or, you know, the Alinea's of the world, the Noma's. But the food was absolutely incredible. It's like you kind of it's, it's, it's Japanese based. I think the chef's Japanese, but it's really, you know, pulls a lot of different flavors and very elevated. I wouldn't you know think of it as Japanese food. But man, that food was like there's a. You know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a big egg guy for some reason. I'm not a big, but there's this, you know, cold boiled egg with a candy cap foam, which candy cap is a. Just, you know, they, they had just all the food was bad. I don't know the, the flavors, you know, the presentation is beautiful as you can expect kind of from a, you know, a restaurant with a star. It's very much that kind of like elevated uh, gastronomy, but the flavors were just absolutely incredible. And I think that's the best meal I've ever had. Wow. Candy capped phone. We kind of lost you there for a second. I don't know what is going on. I think it's not you. I think it is. I think my, I got to restart my computer or something, but it's okay. So, but what was so special about this? Because I'm sure you get these types of kind of interesting things all the time, but why this? I mean, I don't know how to, how to, I guess, you know, put it into words, but just the flavors were absolutely incredible. The way yeah. that all of these, you know, small courses, a, you know, a number of courses, but the way that all of these, you know, individual components, these little pieces work together is, um, you know, something that I've, I've really never personally tasted anything like it. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. It's, it's so exciting when you go to a place and it's just like the menu is so different. Yeah. Exactly. And you're just like, I've never seen any of this stuff before. That's uh yeah, I, I like that a lot too, you know, using novel ingredients. Like when I, I did a I did a you know a lunch and because magnolia, you know, pink magnolias were flowering a lot on my street, I used magnolia petals and a couple different, you know, uh you know, presentations and people were just kind of floored that you could eat magnolia petals that they never <laughs> right. thought of it before. They uh, didn't even know you could eat them. I mean, most of them you can eat, right? They taste like ginger, basically. Um, really? So I, I do like a, a rice vinegar pickling, kind of like sushi ginger. And then I did uh candied them, you know, candy, like candied flower petals with, with egg white and sugar. It was oh kind of like a crisp, crystallized ginger kind of thing. But they happen to be in season. And like I said, I do, you know, I do a lot of foraging for my menu. So that was, uh, you know, kind of a significant part of the, of the menu. And people were, you know, amazed that not only could you eat them, but that they were delicious. Yeah, like eat ginger candies. Yeah, exactly. Like that. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Why don't more people eat magnolia flowers? I don't know, but I think a lot of people just don't know about it. It's just not uh, not known out there. But, you know, the petals on their own are, you know, not not so exceptional. But if you, you know, use them in the forms that you might use raw ginger and then taste delicious, make That's like a awesome. syrup, it's like a gingery syrup. There's a lot of a lot of applications of magnolia. And at least where I live, there's magnolia trees everywhere. So it's uh you know it's a cool resource where are you uh, northern california oh you're there. in NorCal. yeah yeah great food just such good food up there i mean it's amazing because i think the food in southern california is some of the worst in the country in my opinion i agree with that actually <laughs> yeah i don't understand anybody who says the food down here is good it's all bad it's almost all bad i mean there's a couple exceptions korean barbecue fantastic yeah. 
Um, but even the sushi is not good. I mean, you know, they say, oh, the sushi, all the fish here is flown in. Yeah. You know, and none of it is actually from here. So it's yeah. like you're, you're getting yeah, the same there's... sushi here as in Chicago. It's not really any different. Yeah. I mean, I have a friend who I, I go to Southern California a lot because I have family and friends down there. And I do have a friend who's really into Korean food. And she's taken me to some great. Some yeah. Great no, the Korean. If you go to the Korean places, that's the one place. That's the <laughs> one good food. That's but like the one good food that's really good. I've, I mean, maybe I'm biased because there's so much good food here, but I've never understood, you know, the the hype around around Southern California food. It's also if you've ever been down to TJ, if you've ever, go cross the border into Tijuana and yeah. eat a taco, that is going to be 100 times better than any taco oh, yeah. you will get in, Absolutely. in L.A. Because it's not a, the, the food is probably killed like up the street. You know, like yeah. like whatever meat you're getting is fresh, very fresh, as yeah. opposed to here where it's all this disgusting shit. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like the food. Yeah, the food here is really not good. I, and um, yeah, I think it makes people it's really hard to say stay skinny here. You know, like yeah. when I lived in um, New York and Amsterdam, it's very easy to stay in shape, whereas L.A., you can't stay in shape. And I, I do think it's like the, the food is just like bad. Yeah. I don't know why. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, a lot of it is, you know, the, the, you know, industrial agriculture in like the central Valley is, uh, yeah. But even up here, you know, we get some stuff from there and, and the food's a lot better, but I am, I am lucky where I live. There's like five dairies, um, you know, a couple small, like there's just infinite local cheese. There's local produce farm stands. So, um, I'm kind of, uh, spoiled in that sense that you know a lot of the stuff is grown here and even a lot of the restaurants um have stuff you know one of my favorite favorite restaurants uh, in the area called farm shop not to oh. dox myself too much but it's it's not directly in my town but um <laughs> uh they use uh they grow all their herbs outside of the outside of the restaurant and it's all you know all local ingredients small farms so there's just a lot of good food in that regard that there's you know where i live is kind of like a it's like a bastion of local agriculture, whereas you don't get that. And, you know, part of part of it, I think, is that Southern California is a desert and they built yeah. a city on a desert. Right. And that's just kind of, you know, it's kind of asking for, a, you know, a desert existence. You're right. Well, it's weird because you, you would think there would be things you could do with this much sun. Yeah. You know, like and enough water. Like you would think that you could but it's so funny like you know you can't grow coconuts here no you can't grow like pineapples so you can't actually grow the tropical foods which are used to like this much sun yeah and you also can't grow the like other shit so yeah. it's like yeah it's kind of like everything here is kind of like fake besides you know the, the things here that really are superior are like lettuce we do have like the best lettuce yeah, yeah. any lettuce here is going to be far superior than the rest of the country you go you go to I go to Chicago and I eat lettuce and I'm like, oh, my God, like you do. Yeah. At L.A., we have great lettuce. And I think it's just probably just a function of the sun because yeah. lettuce, I think, just like comes up in the sun. Maybe I, you yeah. know, I don't know. But uh, so there are a few things here that really are avocados, of course. Even avocados. Yeah, that's. The... Yeah. Yeah. We do have I have a guy. So I go to the farmer's market every Sunday. Yeah. I just came from it. And we have an avocado guy who has like Fuerte, Pinkerton, Haas. Like next to each other. Yeah, we only and have it's so cool. Here. It's like so great. Wait, <laughs> wait, what? 
we only have Haas up here. I mean, everybody yeah. only has Haas. Like yeah. nobody even knows what a not Haas is. But there's actually like five different types. You know, and I like the long neck ones. I forget what they're called. Those they're are Pinkertons. They're, they're either Pinkertons or, uh, f- yeah, no, those are Pinkertons. The one with like the yeah. long neck. Yeah, yeah, really yeah, yeah. I had that one time. Yeah, yeah. No, here like we do get a lot of good avocados. But besides that, like uh, every- most of the other stuff we get here is is pretty bad. Like I remember growing up in Chicago a tomato like a fresh tomato in the summer was just like the best thing you've ever had whereas here tomatoes they all taste the same all year round they're just kind of like watery i'm growing a a few species and i've been eating the sun gold ones off the plant it's just like the sweetest you know most delicious i think that's the best flavor just the best like smell and flavor in the world a hot fresh tomato from your garden it does not get better than that yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. You guys do take a lot of our water, though. Mono Lake is, uh, is getting low. <laughs> I mean, we don't, right. I mean, we must take so much of the water. You always yeah. drive up the five and you see all the signs being like, stop taking our water. Yeah. 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 It's, I was, you know, I, when I was younger, I went and I camped at Mono Lake and it was, you know, it's starting to get, I can't imagine how low it is now, but a lot of that water um, goes to Southern California. So, you know to water the water the palm trees right yeah which aren't which aren't not like native to here yeah they're they're tropical so they require a ton of water in a place where there's no you know natural water you know very little (laughs) right yeah no it's very uh yeah it's a weird it's a weird place la man it's really a weird like it, it really is uh built over the gates of hell yeah. You know, like I really believe that. And the funny thing is, like Pasadena, where I'm sitting right now, Devil's is supposedly, Gate. yeah, Devil's Gate is like right here. Yeah. Which is actually funny because LA is like the least, or Pasadena is like the least satanic part of LA. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> Jack Parsons from the from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and L. Ron Hubbard went to Devil's Gate Dam to summon demons together. Yeah, dude. And it worked, man. It's like yeah. LA, this place is truly, I see people who move here and they're all bright eyed and bushy tailed, even not in, and this is, doesn't even count in Hollywood, uh, but in anything. And I'm always like, man, talk to me in five years. Like LA will, will for sure like beat you down. You know, it's really, uh, it's a very dark, dark place. LA is a very dark place. And it's, uh, it's funny because it's also land of sunshine. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting place. Yeah, like I said, I've been been to LA a lot. Yeah, um, just because you know there's some really cool stuff there, but also there's kind of an air of you know my my father always says that he's like he's, he says if like the next like apocalypse or you know like weapons crash or something happens, he's gonna he thinks it'll be in LA. It does seem like that. It seems like whatever's gonna happen is like for sure gonna happen in LA. I've always yeah. said that, even since moving here like a while ago. It seems like it's like. For some reason, this place is like chosen to be <laughs> ground zero of, of whatever's going to happen. Um, I don't really like it, though. Honestly, I, I'd be ready to I'd be ready to get out. Have you ever lived anywhere else? I lived in Costa Rica for a couple months. When I was oh, working. nice. What was that like? like in the jungle? So we didn't ha- we had a, like a generator, a shoddy generator. And we had like kind of kind of bunks with like two walls and then two non-walls that were just kind of like screens they weren't even screens they're like shutters because tons of bugs would get in and then i had a mosquito net over the bed and that was pretty much the but it was it, you know it was pretty amazing like just being able to be out there and work with you know all the wildlife and it's just 
it's like a different planet, you know, out in, in the middle of the jungle, you know, one of the most biodiverse places in the world. But I got so eaten up by mosquitoes. Um, like, you know, bugs ten, tend to gravitate me towards me, but that includes mosquitoes. <laughs> and uh, so I was covered and fire ants, you know, destroyed some of my uh, my food rations. But it was pretty incredible um, being able to, you know, we worked with the sea turtles, although I never got to see the babies. I wasn't in the hatchery when they actually hatched, but just, you know, hiking out, bringing the eggs, um, saw so many different types of like frogs and stuff. I worked with uh, primarily with a, a Spanish scientist who was studying the Gulf of Dulcian poison dart frog, which I bred oh. in captivity long ago. Um, they're fairly common in, you know, in, in the frog trade, but they're critically endangered in the wild. So getting to see them and like record their calls and we're trying to figure out what they eat that causes them to develop the poison. Wow. Uh, that's amazing. So did they actually, sh- what's it called? The, the, the Gulf of Dulcian poison dart frog. Gulf of Dulcian poison dart frog. And does yeah. it actually shoot darts? No, no, that comes from um, tribes. People central and South oh. America would, would <laughs> rub the frogs on the darts because they contain right. uh, the main ones that contain a really powerful poison are uh, like Phyllobates bicolor um, and a couple other ones in that genus. There's a bunch of different poison dart frogs and not all of them are so poisonous, but their poison we do know comes from their diet, but we don't know a lot about what part of their diet comes from. I know the, the golden poison dart frog, the most poisonous one, um, Phyllobates erotus, it, uh, it, they found that the tetra the tetratox tetratoxin in uh, in the skin was identical to the one produced by birds in Papua New Guinea that they'd gained from eating poisonous beetles. Whoa! Um, so we're not, you know, there might be, uh, but yeah, it's still it's still kind of unknown. Um, the consensus is ants right now, but that they eat the ants and then the ants turn into like skin stuff that yeah they turn they use a, a you know a gland in their digestion to turn it into poison uh something fairly common in nature um like there's a uh, interestingly there's some garter snakes near where i live that are actually poisonous uh which isn't a natural um tendency of garter snakes but uh, they're poisonous because they uh, they eat the newts here, and they figured you know they, they've adapted to process the toxins from the poisonous newts into their bodies. That if something eats them, they're poisonous. Uh, which is pretty cool. It's not something that garter snakes. You know, we've seen garter snakes do in the past. Uh, nudibranchs, you know, sea slugs. They eat uh, they eat stinging anemones and jellyfish, and use their nematocysts and their venom to uh, to be you know poisonous themselves or venomous themselves. Either way. Um, but it's pretty cool. I don't know. It's so fascinating. I think frogs specifically are very, very underrated vertebrate in terms of, you know, just the sheer amount of adapt, you know, adaptive radiation and just, uh, all the different types of frogs and what, and what they're capable of that, that was for a while, you know, kind of my, kind of my focus. I did a frog of the day on Twitter a long time ago. This is like mm-hmm. ancient lore. Um, but I actually pretty much ran out of frogs. I did it for, you know, a couple <laughs> hundred days and there's only so many frogs that are like documented. I mean, there's obviously a lot more species, but um, eventually I just I kind of fell out of it. But if a new frog would get discovered, that was interesting. I would I would make a, you know, a posthumous frog of the day post to, to celebrate the new frog. There's one called a zombie frog. That's this weird squat little orange frog. But 
they named it, I guess, because the scientists digging in the mud for it looked like zombies when they came out. It's not even about the frog. <laughs> yeah, um, there's, yeah, there's always shit like that. But why do you think cool. the why do you think the right wing identifies with frogs or the new right? It's something I've I've always been kind of intrigued. I by. mean, we all know the basic yeah, people are going to be like because of Pepe, no shit. Of Pepe, yeah, but but, but I mean, oh, come on, like it's not just because of Pepe. Like, there's some sort of. I have a theory, but but there's some reason, like right. I mean, there's got to be some bigger metaphysical reason. I mean, there's a million memes out there, right? It's not just yeah. because Pepe is a frog. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I actually have thought about this, and I've wondered about this. I think you know, like I said, frogs are very adaptive. Um, and I think that for any kind of movement that is, you know, a little more fractured, you know, a little bit more of an you know, kind of an adaptive radiation in like the ideological sense. But there's, you know, there's a lot of animals like that. I think partially part of it may have been by chance. But I think that it's kind of a, you know, any kind of dissident political movement um, can can re maybe relate to frogs in that sense. I think moths are actually the other animal that's like that. That's uh Weirdly enough, those well, are, those moths are... are really weird. Moths have like such a strange moths are one of those animals. There's like five animals that I feel like genuinely are connected to like another dimension. And it's like moths, octopus, bats, you know, where they kind of like if you look at their physiognomy, they're they're like not really all there. Like, like there's like part of them you can't see kind of. Yeah. I feel like moths are like that. Like they're like connected to some other realm or something. I mean, it's funny. Moth may be the animal that has the, the most imagery of any animal in the Bible. Really? Uh, I think it's is yeah. the moth. Yeah. Uh, especially analogous to like the will of Christ, but also to kind of like, you know, uh, you know, you're well, cause flying to the light. You're flying. To yeah, the light. yeah. You know, moths eat you know, old clothing and stuff like that. So there's a lot yeah. of like moth-eaten imagery, you know, it talks about people hoarding their wealth and says, you know, your clothes are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, oh. you know, testify against you and burn your burn your soul like fire. But um, I think that, uh, I don't know, I used, to, I used to raise moths in big like mesh hampers, um, but there's just, moths are so fascinating. So um, weird. They're so There's this weird. one like inchworm that, um, takes pieces of like flowers and plants and creates like different disguises. It decorates itself differently based on, you know, whatever uh, plant it's on. It's like a, there's one that eats wasps, an inchworm that's, you know, learned to, to capture and eat wasps. There's, you know, the, the adaptation and just like how moths have, you know, changed their bodies kind of just for any, any circumstance, you know, deadly for, there's diurnal nectar feeding moths that look like butterflies in Madagascar. They're really fascinating, kind of like frogs in the sense that I feel like moths have, you know, they're, they're, they've adapted so much to so many different niches that they're almost like different animals, you know, within one, within one group. And you could say that of a lot of animals, but I don't know, I think frogs and moths are kind of like the testament to, to how much you can change in order to fill a role and kind of embody that. Um, kind of veering off from the from that. No, it's from, all right. <laughs> from the from the original frog question, but I don't know. That's kind of that's kind of how I see both of those symbolically. Well, right. They, you mean frogs and moths are kind of like the same symbolically, like they're exactly. these. Yeah, I think it's because frogs are. Uh, it's the prince metaphor. Yeah, you know, it's like frogs Kiss. are these unkissed, 
unkissed friends. These unkissed things with great potential. And if only you kiss them, you know, then yeah. they will become these amazing princes. And okay. I think that that's like our our people or my people are are that exact thing. And I think, you know, it's like there are these people with insane amount of potential. Yeah. But they have been sort of uh, sidelined, uh, yeah. at least according to them, you know, whether or not they sidelined themselves or they have been sidelined, like who knows. But and, you know, they're kind of in cell like, you know, they're in cell. Some of them, some of them are not. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, we yeah. all think of ourselves as these kind of like um, monstrous turds in the corner <laughs> you know <laughs> that are just like please somebody like you know just give us a chance you know i think that that's why they feel uh kinship with the frog it's interesting um yeah i think that i think that actually that's a, that's a pretty strong correlation between that metaphor and and uh yeah i see that a lot just in you know even even more broadly that you know there's so many with the age of the internet i guess there's so many um you know, great, greatly talented creative people out there who've kind of been snubbed, who aren't, you know, fitting into the uh, the conventional route, the conventional, you know, world of art or literature or whatever um, you want to have. So I think there's a lot of a lot of those unkissed, uh, unkissed prince frogs. Unkissed out there. frogs. Yeah, definitely. Um, so where are you at? Well, you know, so being a master of um, which you obviously are of the en entomological world, <laughs> where where does this take you? And by the way, I just wanted to say to everybody that I think both and we've talked about this, but both Nabokov and Teddy Roosevelt were both serious entomologists. Is yeah, that right? Er Ernst Jünger also. And Jünger. And Jünger. Right. And yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's something about something about bugs, uh, bugs in literature. I mean, you know, even Kafka, not an entomologist, but certainly you know, the metamorphosis preoccupied. Totally. Me. There's definitely like a weird. Yeah, there's definitely uh, some kind of like thing. Yeah. I mean, the insect world is it's, you know, it's almost like the mind of the creative. You know, there's so, so such vast um, just like beauty and, and intrigue. And it almost doesn't feel real. I mean, there's that quote that if, you know, God must have had a, a serious affinity for beetles because there's so many beetles. Out there. <laughs> right. Because there's uh, so many. It's like, why did you make so many of these? Like, <laughs> like, what were you trying to say here? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, totally. Uh, I think that, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's, I've always been drawn to entomology and also to like the creative mind. And I don't, I don't feel like there's something of a parallel there. You know, uh, but I don't know, biology in general is, is kind of an interesting, you know, role in which it's played in, you know, non-biologists, you know, like uh, Emperor Hirohito was like a very accomplished marine biologist um, studying like, I don't know, like, like mollusks or something off the off the oceans of Japan. Um, but there's some, I don't know, kind of, a, I think really the way to put it is that if you have a kind of like that primordial curiosity it's easy to be drawn into the entomological world just because it's so fascinating. I mean, talk about like, you know, people talk about aliens, but extraterrestrial life, but you go, you know, you look even at like under a microscope or even, you know, not under a microscope, lift up a rock and you'll just see like, you know, the most peculiar, you know, modeled forms, the most fascinating, uh, you know, dynamics between them. So I think that people with that, you know, kind of curiosity and that creativity could, can be drawn towards insects. I feel like that's kind of the people I meet who are, you know, 
maybe not serious entomologists who are just thinking of it like, um, you know, very like academically, um, but people who are, you know, serious entomologists, but also have some other passion. I feel like that other passion is almost always a creative one in my experience. Yeah. Also there's the, the judge in, uh, did you ever read Blood Meridian? Yes. Yeah. You know, and the judge is obsessed with categorizing everything, you know, yeah. he, he has to know everything on earth. And, yeah. you know, there's a quote, I don't know if it's actually from him or somebody else, but he says, God speaks in uh, rocks and stones and the bones of things, yeah. which that's how I've always felt. I mean, when I, when I am, I'm really lucky because in my uh, job as a copywriter, as a, you know, branding guy, as a creative director, I get to go and explore the depths of the operations of various, um, you know, like I have a client that does metal fabrication and I get to go see his like $2 million laser machine that like cuts steel. And it's like, most people never see that shit. You know I mean? Like they don't get to see like how the thing, I think so many people are atheists because it's like, it just seems like shit appears out of nowhere. They don't like see how, what magic goes into making things, you know? And yeah. uh, I feel the same way about bugs and insects. It's like, or, or any of these things, if you really like look at them, as you're saying, uncovering the rock, it feels like you're touching something divine. At least that's how it feels to me. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. then why are so many scientists atheists? Yeah, I don't, it, it, it's an interesting question. It didn't used to be the case. That's kind of a, but I think a lot of scientists now versus like in the past are mainly fascinated with trying to, you know, just define the world in exact terms and get to, you know, the exact bottom of everything so that there's no, you know, I think that, that, that you know, to the like the monomaniacal scientist that kind of lends itself to, you know, figuring the world out, you know, mastering everything, you know, uncovering the the source of all matter. And so that there's nothing, you don't feel like there's something greater, there's something that you can't control that you can't perceive, which I think, you know, I think that's a, that's, that's a, you know, a fallacy, obviously, you know, late middle ages, early Renaissance, like I was talking about, there were a lot of scientists who are also, you know, like hermetic Christians. And there's a, a paraphrasing of, of a section in the Emerald Tablet in the Corpus Hermeticum that says like, as above, so below. It's yeah. not exactly what it says, but that's kind of the summation which was really the, you know, ethos of a lot of, you know, these, these early scientists and that, you know, what was above in the worlds that we can't perceive that we can't, you know, uh, you know, enter at least, you know, in, in material existence also is reflected perhaps, you know, less perfectly, but still reflected, you know, in the world. And that was, you know, by Paracelsus, um, who was, like I said, he was like the, one of the first real doctors he, uh, you know, he believed in creating a panacea, like a medicine for illness, but also one for like to alleviate the existence in this world and sort of the purification of the soul. So we saw that as kind of, you know, the inverse of each. And I think that, you know, that's kind of my approach to naturalism and how I feel. Um, but, you know, I, I was I was, you know, raised non-religious. I was an atheist. Um, and so I can kind of understand that worldview. But I think it's it's very limiting and it's kind of sad you know, to want to figure everything out, to get to the bottom of everything. Well, you know, not believing that, you know, something greater has, you know, inspired this beauty in the world. I think that's kind of the, the materialist, rationalist um, perspective that I like, you know, that, that most irks me is that there is no, you know, there is no intangible 
there is no unknowing. There is, you know, no, no greater beauty that's reflected in this world. It's just chance. It's, you know, random, random numbers and dice. So where are you at on evolution? I think yeah, I have a, you know, there, it's, it's interesting. One of the, the first sort of theories of evolution was from Basilides, who was a Christian teacher in Alexandria, um, heterodox Christian teacher. And uh, it was kind of, you know, that there's the, the seed, you know, that expanded outwards. The Pythagorean says something called a monad, which is represented by a, a circle with a dot in the middle. It's kind of the infinity of everything. And, uh, you know, as that unfurled and created lower worlds you know, and, and, and new forms, those forms emanated out of each other. That's kind of how I see how I see like Darwinian evolution. I think there's, you know, some problems there. And I, I think, you know, um, the evolution of the spirit maybe is a whole, whole different question, but um, you know, I, I don't, I don't deny that obviously animals change over time because you can look at it, you know, anoles can be made to, to speciate in, you know, two generations. But I think that, you know, at the same time of, you know, an emergence of, you know, of material forms of animal forms, there's also, you know, the, the emergence of the spirit from that kind of central, central aspect that is, you know, the kind of the totality of God, the, the infinity of all things. I think in the, in Poimandris, which is a hermetic, um, you know, definitely Christian in tone text, um, that everything, that plural was represented as a great dragon and, you know, all unfolds out of that. And, you know, it, it actually, that, that's sort of the same idea. It talks about how, you know, animals unfold out of this center um so i think you know that makes more sense to me rather than you know some you know guy in a robe coming around you know creating these these forms especially since you know i you i don't deny like the fossil record or anything like that obviously uh but i do think that there is a you know everything in this world has a has a divine mirror Totally. So uh, before before we go, because unfortunately I, I do have to go and uh, I could do this all day. This is honestly my favorite conversation. I can talk about yeah, this shit. Like this is like truly my I should have like been probably a surgeon. You know, if had I had a not terrible upbringing, I probably like had I had parents that actually were like paying any attention at all they probably would have said like go be a surgeon, you know, because I have a ton of doctors in my family. I also like got like i do very well in science shit so i love this stuff like i i did i I had one job uh copywriting in pharma which is pure pure evil but (laughs) i loved it like i was like and this was like high like ultra scientific pharma so it was like uh communicating genetic tests you know yeah so i could talk about this stuff all day but the last question i want to ask you is how because unfortunately i have to go but um how did you trans you? So you said you grew up an atheist. Yeah. But then you made this, the switch. So how did you make that switch? It's funny. I had a, like a, a religious experience, like an epiphany in which I was, you know, in a room, I think I was writing and I, I felt like the presence without seeing or, or hearing it. I felt the presence of something far greater than, you know, could be summed up in, you know, in matter. Um, and that kind of, you know, it kind of gave me, made me face, I mean, I kind of always believed that there had to be something greater, but I was kind of, you know, sat in in that kind of mindset. But when I felt that, when I had kind of that that confirmation, um, I immediately started, uh, you know, I started, I kind of just started studying theology. I wasn't sure exactly 
you know, where I've gotten to the point is what I, you know, I intuitively believe and maybe I can sum it up better. I can reference text, but early on, like I would, you know, I studied like, uh, I studied, you know, Jewish and Kabbalist, you know, I went to Catholic church. I was interested in Sufism. Um, so I had kind of an unorthodox path that way, but I think that that was important for me, at least in, you know, my, my spirit, you know, my, my, you know, personal experience with the divine, um, to have, you know, have not been raised into any, you know, any, you know, specific organized religion, but, um, uh, to sort of figure it out for myself and to, to, you know, to, to walk, you know, with, you know, with this, you know, divine experience as I, uh, as I learn more and more about myself and about the world. And so I don't, I have a very unorthodox, um, you know, way of, of coming to, of coming to religion. You keep coming back to this unorthodox thing and literally, well, I didn't mean it. literally I mean, and figuratively, but, yeah, double but, <laughs> but, but wait, uh, was this in a moment of low? Like, was this like, uh, at the, you know, rock bottom moment Not where really. you had it or no, it just happened no, random, just happened randomly. I mean, you know, I think my faith has been strengthened in lower times in my life. Um, you know, I, I had a, I had a pretty rough experience, um, when I was at college a couple of years ago, I had a, you know, a psychotic break and I had to leave yeah. on medical leave and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's crazy. You know, coming out of that, you know, God was, you know, one thing that like I could look to when I felt, you know, totally hopeless. A lot of stuff in my life was kind of falling apart, but you know, even, in, even in my highest times, you know, I still, I still feel that I don't, it's not like a crutch for my, uh, my emotional despair, but um, at that time specifically, I can't remember anything, anything exceptional um you know happening that would have it's so it just it just came up right on you like yeah, happened to me that's so cool dude i yeah. did this is what i say to everybody i i am the same like i've had a relationship with god since i was very young and it was just because it happened yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. i mean like everybody people say oh you know how do you know how do you know i'm like because you just like it's very obvious you know yeah. when it happens like exactly. you know what happens and you know that there's something like else there, you know, like I, I'm the same. I, I grew up total atheist, ultra progressive atheist or no, you know, my mom's like, uh, you know, like, uh, meet the fuckers, Jewish, uh, hippie woman, you know what no, I mean? So it's like, mine actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not so much. She, she was raised hippie. So she kind of rejected that, but she's definitely you know, a, a Jewish Jewish mom, Jewish mom, but not Jewish, you know, not, like, yeah, like, not religiously. Yeah, it, right. And it was like finding Judaism for me was like exactly. Yeah. Anyway, this is a whole other conversation. But even when as a child of totally a religious parents, I was making deals with God. I was, you know, I was talking to God from when I was very young. Yeah. And it's just like, everybody's like, oh, well, you know, how do you know? And it's like, and then later, same. I have like multiple, very crazy religious experiences. Yeah, me too. And very profound. And it's like, you know, I, I honestly think it's a difference between, you're clearly a very sensitive person. Yeah. And either you have the sensitivity to feel it or you don't. And I think honestly, the people that are atheists, they're just like dense. You know, they're just like people yeah. who are dense. They just can't like feel it. And nobody's making them, you know, nobody's forcing them to pretend. So so they're just like, oh, what are you talking about? You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that that's uh, that's an important, important part of my uh, my spiritual experience for me is you know, that that intuition and being able to, to sense that, you know, in the yeah. midst of all of this other stuff. 
Totally. And then that's when you start to see it like written everywhere. And yeah, it's too bad that so many scientists have, have for some reason been taken over with this atheist mentality. Yeah. I don't really understand like why I, I think it, yeah, I don't know. Even Isaac Newton was you know, trying to create the philosopher's stone looking for like messages from God in the Bible. So you're right. I mean, the, all, every founding father was like a hardcore Christian. You know, and a lot and of masons those... too. But... <laughs> wait, wait, what? They were all so masons too. Yeah, they were masons. They were Christians. I mean, they all spoke like seven languages. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like. Um. Anyway, man. All right. Thank you so much. This was really great. I mean, yeah. I don't even know where to send people because it seems like you're going to med school. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Hopefully. Are you sure? Are you definitely? I think I think it's it's you know I, I you know it's it's a couple of years out so I haven't uh, you know I don't have like a set you know set in stone but I think uh, I found that I just love medicine so much especially diagnostics and infectious disease that I can't really imagine myself uh, choosing a different like academic path. Well, we need more doctors like you, man. So <laughs> you know you're gonna have a t- rough fucking dime though. I hope you know because oh, you're getting you're getting into the most powerful entity on earth. You know, the the pharma, the pharmaceutical industry is the most powerful single thing on planet Earth. And it likes seeing things go a certain way. So, like, if you're going to go against it, which you obviously are, you know, you better be ready for that because. Yeah, strap in. (laughs) For sure. They're going to not be nice. You know, like, I mean, you got to you first of all, you got to just not let them know your power level until for a long time yeah yeah so but i think you should do it i mean and you can make a ton of money so you know i don't care so much about that as i do about uh, helping people (laughs) well you're young you'll care about money as you get as you get get older but um all right man well dude yeah i mean there's nowhere to even send people besides your twitter right because i mean mean, you have a great book and stuff yeah my my book's linked in my twitter yeah um that's really, you know, the hub of my operation. So people want to find me just, you know, at insect bra on Twitter. And um, we can like hire you to like do events though. Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. I might actually really be down to do that soon. So let's, let's, uh, let's talk about that. But right, sounds good. All right, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to uh, stop recording.